welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Well, you all could have guessed where this was heading. This episode is about anatomy of the wrist and the hand. Studying hand anatomy in preparation for this podcast has made me remember why I always stopped at the wrist, but as always, you guys are keeping me honest, so let's get into it. To kick us off, let's talk about the bones of the wrist and the hand. There are eight carpal bones, which articulate together in two rows of four to articulate with the distal radius and ulna, and then again with the metacarpal bones distally. The carpal bones form a C-shaped concavity, with the concave aspect of this allowing passage of the flexor tendons through the carpal tunnel. The eight bones have the following names, which you can use a mnemonic to remember, but the one that I know is probably a little bit R-rated for this podcast. So let's just talk about the names of the bones in turn. Starting with the proximal row and going from a radial to ulnar direction, the most proximal radially placed bone is the scaphoid, followed by the lunate, triquetrial, and then the pisiform, which actually sits in front of the triquetrial bone. The next row starts with the trapezium at the base of the thumb, the trapezoid, the capitate, and the hamate, which has a little anteriorly directed hook, which is relevant when we move on to talk about the transverse carpal ligament. We probably don't need to know too much more for general surgery about the carpal bones. So moving on to the metacarpals. There are five metacarpal bones which articulate with the carpal bones proximally and with the phalanges distally. There are phalanges of which the thumb has two and there are three for each of the other four fingers. The flexor retinaculum or transverse carpal ligament is a strong fibrous band that sits above or in the anterior surface of the carpal bones. It travels across this concavity and therefore borders the anterior border of the carpal tunnel. The transverse carpal ligament is attached on the radial side to the scaphoid bone and the ridge of the trapezium and on the ulnar side to the hook of the hamate and the pisiform bone. The carpal tunnel, as I've mentioned, is a tunnel through the concavity of the carpal bones, bordered posteriorly by the carpal bones and anteriorly by the flexor retinaculum. It allows passage of some flexors as well as the median nerve into the hand from the wrist. The contents of the carpal tunnel are 10 tendons and one nerve. The tendons include the four tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis, which as I mentioned in the last episode, these tendons travel through with two anteriorly and two posteriorly. So the tendons of the third and fourth digit sit at the front and the second and the fifth sit at the back. And then the tendons of the flexor digitorum profundus also travel through the carpal tunnel posterior to the tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis and these enter into the carpal tunnel lying side by side. The two other tendons that run through sit on the radial side, and this includes the tendon of the flexor pollicis longus, as well as the tendon of the flexor carpi radialis. There are three tendon sheaths that run through the carpal tunnel. The tendons of the 
flexor digitorum superficialis and profundus are all encased by a synovial sheath together um, and they basically indent this synovial sheath from a radial direction. The flexor pollicis longus and flexor carpi radialis both have their own synovial sheath. And then the last content of the carpal tunnel, as I've mentioned, is the median nerve. The median nerve passes through the carpal tunnel anterior to the tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis and can be found anatomically sitting just to the radial side of the palmaris longus tendon just before it enters into the carpal tunnel at the wrist. It's important to note that the median nerve gives off a superficial palmar branch prior to its passage through the carpal tunnel. And so carpal tunnel syndrome shouldn't affect the sensation over the palm of the hand. The median nerve does also give off an important branch just distal to the carpal tunnel. And this is the recurrent motor branch of the median nerve, which supplies the muscles of the thena eminence. There is some potential anatomical variation of this nerve, which can pass through the flexor retinaculum itself and also swing back around over the flexor retinaculum while it's coming back to innervate the thena muscles. And this nerve can be damaged during carpal tunnel decompression. For this reason, it's important to place your incision as well as the division of the transverse carpal ligament slightly ulnarly deviated in order to avoid injuring this recurrent branch of the median nerve. Saying that though, there are also some structures that traverse anterior or superficial to the transverse carpal ligament. This includes the ulnar artery and the ulnar nerve, which cross over the ulnar side, as their names would suggest, of the transverse carpal ligament. And the last thing to be mindful of is that the origin of the thena and the hypothena muscles are actually from the transverse carpal ligament themselves. So you might come down through the superficial palmar fascia and encounter some muscle. And it's important to identify which side you're on and follow those muscles down to their origin on the transverse carpal ligament in order to identify it sufficiently. The last thing I briefly want to mention before we move on with this anatomy podcast is the palmar aponeurosis. This is important when we are thinking about Dupuytren's contractures. So the palmar aponeurosis is a ligament that sits just under the skin of the palmar aspect of the hand. And this is found superficial to the transverse carpal ligament. So you often have to cut through this before you reach the um, transverse carpal ligament when you're doing a carpal tunnel release. This is a sort of triangular-shaped tendon, so starting with the base of the triangle towards the wrist, it fans out over the hand. It then divides into four slips, and each of these slips is eventually inserted into the base of the proximal phalanges and into the flexor sheaths of the fingers. In Dupuytren's contracture, the palmar aponeurosis becomes thickened due to fibroblast proliferation and the deposition of collagen along the palmar aponeurosis. And because you anatomically can see that there are slips that go to each of the fingers, the thickening of the palmar aponeurosis affects the digits and causes a flexion deformity of the involved digits. So now we've had that little segue into the carpal tunnel. Let's step back for a second and talk about what all of the tendons of the muscles we learned about from the forearm are doing once they enter into the hand. So let's start with the flexor tendons. 
So the tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis pass through the carpal tunnel in that configuration we've talked about with two on top and two on the bottom. And they do this in a synovial sheath that's common with the profundus tendons as well. These extend then up through the carpal tunnel and into the hand. The four tendons then head towards the second, third, fourth, and fifth digits. The tendon of the fifth digit synovial sheath that was surrounding the superficialis and flexor tendons in the palm along with it. So the synovial sheath of the fifth digit is continuous with that of the all of the tendons in the palm. The second, third and fourth digits have their own synovial sheaths that commence at about the metacarpophalangeal joint and extend up into the fingers. So the tendons of the flexor digitorum superficialis actually divide in two halves and these halves flatten a little and spiral around the tendon of the profunda which is sitting just deep to them and insert into the sides of the shaft of the middle phalanx. The tendons of the flexor digitorum profundus, as I've mentioned, start initially deep to the tendons of the superficialis, but they pass through the two split halves of the superficialis tendon to then travel up the finger and be inserted into the base of the terminal phalanx. The flexor pollicis longus tendon has its own synovial sheath, which follows it from the carpal tunnel all the way to its insertion into the distal phalanx of the thumb. It's also important to realize that from the metacarpal heads all the way to the distal phalanges, all of the five digits also have a strong fibrous sheath in which the flexor tendons and their synovial sheaths reside. They are also what the four slips of the palmar aponeurosis insert into at the proximal aspect. Flipping over to the extensor surface, the Tendons from the forearm enter into the dorsal surface of the hand under cover of the extensor retinaculum. This is a strong fibrous band that prevents bowstringing of the extensor tendons at the wrist. The tendons of the three muscles that go to the second, third and fourth digits go underneath the extensor retinaculum and travel towards the fingers. The extensor digitorum has three main tendons that go to the second, third, and fourth digits with a slip that will travel to the little finger that usually comes off quite distally. Then there's also the extensor indices tendon, which is traveling to the second digit, and the extensor digiti minimi, which has two tendons that travel to the fifth digit. When you look at a dissected picture of the extensor tendons, you'll notice that there is also a number of intertendinous connections that happen at the heads of the metacarpal bones. These tendons all cross the metacarpophalangeal joint, where they then broaden out on the dorsal aspect of the proximal phalanx and divides into three slips. The central slip will pass to the base of the middle phalanx, and the two lateral slips will diverge or go laterally around the central slip before reconverging and being inserted into the base of the distal phalanx. These lateral slips receive the tendons of the interosseous and lumbrical muscles and these together form the extensor expansion of the digit. For the thumb, the tendon of the extensor pollicis brevis muscle is inserted into the proximal phalanx and the tendon of the extensor pollicis longus is inserted into the distal phalanx. So 
So it follows on a little bit from talking about the flexor tendons to talk about the lumbrical muscles. These muscles originate in the palm from the tendons of the flexor digitorum profundus muscle. The lumbricals of the second and third digits originate from the radial side of the flexor digitorum profundus tendons and insert into the extensor expansion of these digits, as we mentioned before. These two muscles are unicipital, which means they have a single muscular belly of origin, and they are supplied by the median nerve. The two lumbricals that go to the fifth and fourth digits are bicipital. So the lumbrical to the fifth digit has a muscle belly that comes from the fifth and fourth FDP tendon, and the lumbrical to the fourth digit has a muscle belly that originates from the fourth and the third FDP tendon. These two lumbricals as well are inserted into the extensor expansions of those digits and are supplied differently by the ulnar nerve. These muscles function to help with proprioception of the hand. Deeper in the palm from the lumbricals are the interosseous muscles, and there are both palmar interossei and dorsal interossei. These muscles all originate from the metacarpal bones, and as previously discussed, these are also inserted into the extensor expansions of the digits. The function of the palmar interossei are to adduct the fingers, and the function of the dorsal interossei are to abduct the fingers, which is commonly referred to as pad, palmar adduct, and dab, dorsal abduct. There are three palmar interossei, and given their action is to adduct the fingers back towards the middle finger, there's no palmar interossei for the middle finger. Therefore, the uh, three interossei arise from the metacarpal bone of the index ring and little fingers. The dorsal interossei are abductors. And as we'll go into talk about in a little bit, there are specific abductors that go to the thumb and the fifth digits. So the dorsal interossei essentially sit in the spaces between the first and second, second and third, third and fourth, and fourth and fifth metacarpals. Each of the four interossei in these spaces arise by two heads, one from each bone bounding the interosseous space that they occupy. And as we've mentioned before, they are all inserted into the dorsal expansion of the digits, but also partly into the base of the proximal phalanx. All of the palmar and dorsal interossei are supplied by the deep branch of the ulnar nerve. The next round of muscles I want to talk about are the muscles of the thenar and the hypothenar eminence. Both the thenar and the hypothenar eminence are made up of three muscles. The thenar eminence is composed of the abductor pollicis brevis, the flexor pollicis brevis, and the opponens pollicis. All of these muscles have their origin from the flexor retinaculum, which I mentioned earlier on in this episode. The abductor pollicis brevis, as its name suggests, is abducting the thumb away from the hand. So this is the most radially located of these three muscles. It arises from the flexor retinaculum as well as part of the scaphoid, and it's inserted into the radial side of the base of the proximal phalanx. The flexor pollicis brevis is further around towards the palm side as it's going to flex the thumb towards the palm. 
It arises from the flexor retinaculum and is inserted into the radial border of the proximal phalanx. And the third muscle is the opponent's pollicis, which also arises from the flexor retinaculum but is just deep to the flexor pollicis brevis. This muscle inserts into the whole radial border of the metacarpal bone of the thumb. As previously mentioned, all of these muscles are supplied by the recurrent muscular branch of the median nerve, which usually breaks off the median nerve in the carpal tunnel or just distal to it and loops over the flexor retinaculum to come back and supply these three muscles. Saying that, though, there can be quite varied uh, supply of these muscles, especially the flexor pollicis brevis and opponent's pollicis. So the abductor pollicis brevis is the muscle that most reliably is solely supplied by the median nerve. And so that abducting movement of the thumb away from the hand in a sort of anterior direction is the most sensitive test for testing the motor function of the median nerve or of this motor recurrent branch of the median nerve. The muscles of the hypothena eminence have similar names to those of the thena eminence, but instead of going to the pollicis, they're going to the digiti minimi or the little finger. All of these muscles again arise from the flexor retinaculum. And the three muscles are the abductor digiti minimi, which is the most ulnarly located of this group of muscles. And it inserts into the ulnar side of the base of the proximal phalanx and also into the extensor expansion. The next is the flexor digiti minimi, and it's the middle one of these muscles, and it's inserted into the base of the proximal phalanx as well. And then the opponent's digiti minimi also arises from the flexor retinaculum and is inserted into the ulnar border of the fifth metacarpal bone. All of these three muscles are supplied by the deep branch of the ulnar nerve. Now, there's one more muscle to talk about, which is a really deep muscle on the palmar aspect of the hand, and this is the adductor pollicis. This muscle can be seen on a deep dissection of the hand as a sort of triangular fan-shaped muscle with an origin from the third metacarpal, sort of the length of the third metacarpal, and a second more oblique muscle belly, which origin is from the base of the um, second and third metacarpals and their adjoining carpal bones. And these two muscle bellies converge and insert as a single um, attachment into the base of the proximal phalanx and the tendon of the extensor pollicis longus muscle. Even though this muscle is going to the thumb, it's not supplied by the recurrent branch of the median nerve like the other um, thena muscles are, but instead is supplied by the deep branch of the ulnar nerve, the same as the hypothena muscles. Well, that takes us to the end of talking about the bones and tendons and muscles of the hand. So, of course, now we need to talk about the arteries and the nerves. If we remember from our forearm podcast, there are two main arteries that traverse the arm and the forearm to end up in the wrist and the hand. These are the radial artery and the ulnar arteries. The ulnar artery is located on the ulnar side or medial side of the wrist and traverses over the flexor retinaculum to enter into the hand. The ulnar artery essentially finishes as the superficial palmar arch and it forms an arch on the palmar surface of the hand that traverses at about the level of the web space of the thumb 
when the thumb is extended. And this should be the limit of your incision when you're doing a carpal tunnel release so that you don't injure this arch. It's called an arch, but it's usually not continuous with a branch from the radial artery on the other side. So is more like a hockey stick appearance. And this artery usually gives a palmar digital branch, which goes to the little finger, and then three common palmar digital branches or arteries, which then run distally in the web spaces before dividing into digital arteries proper. So there's two little digital arteries that run up either side of the digits on the palmar aspect. The thumb side of the second finger and the thumb itself are not supplied by branches off the superficial palmar arch, but instead receive branches from the radial artery. So let's talk about the radial artery. The radial artery leaves the distal aspect of the radius and passes around dorsally to pass through the anatomical snuff box over the trapezium bone of the carpal bones. It then passes through the two heads of the first dorsal interossei muscle and gives off two branches, the arteria princeps pollicis to the thumb and the arteria radialis indices to the second digit, which is filling in those gaps that are left by the palmar arch of the ulnar artery to supply blood to the thumb and the thumb side of the index finger. It then passes between the two heads of the adductor pollicis muscle, which if we remember is that really deep muscle in the hand with the two heads, one from the third um, metacarpal and the other from the base of the second and third metacarpals, and enters into the deep aspect of the hand to form the deep palmar arch. Unlike the superficial palmar arch, the deep palmar arch is much more frequently continuous with a deep branch from the ulnar artery, which forms a proper anastomosis in the deep aspect of the hand. The deep palmar arch gives off three palmar metacarpal arteries, which pass distally and send anastomoses off to the common palmar digital branches of the superficial arch. Branches will also perforate through the interosseous spaces to anastomose with the dorsal metacarpal arteries. And this is also where the venous drainage passes through the hand to enter into the dorsal veins on the dorsal aspect of the hand. And this avoids the veins being compressed with gripping of the hand. And to finish us off, let's talk about the nerves of the hand. Let's start with the ulnar nerve. The ulnar nerve, as we've already talked about, enters the hand on the ulnar surface of the flexor retinaculum. It then divides into two branches, a superficial branch and a deep branch. The superficial branch does supply motor supply to the palmaris brevis and then continues on as the digital nerves to the ulnar one and a half fingers. Just like the arteries, the nerves will divide and there will be a digital nerve running up both sides of the palmar aspect of the digit. The deep branch passes down through the heads of the origin of the flexor and abductor digiti minimi and through the opponent's digiti minimi, which are all those nerves of the hypothena eminence which this deep branch supplies. The deep branch then passes down onto the carpal bones and does its own little arch within the concavity of the deep palmar arch, and it supplies a lot of the intrinsic muscles of the hand. It gives motor supply to the two lumbricals on the ulnar side, 
all of the dorsal and palmar interossei and both heads of the adductor pollicis muscle. The median nerve, as we've already discussed, passes through the carpal tunnel and gives off its recurrent muscular branch to the muscles of the thenar eminence. It then continues on, supplying the first and second lumbrical muscles and then branching out into the digital nerves of the radial three and a half digits. The radial nerve travels with the radial artery to cross through the anatomical snuff box, but instead of diving back into the hand, it then supplies the dorsal skin of the hand and the lateral three and a half digits, with its innovation terminating just proximal to the nail beds. I just want to finish off with a couple of anatomical principles that are relevant when talking about general surgery and hand surgery. The first of these is to talk about the hand spaces or the palmar spaces. The palm has three potential closed spaces that have well-defined anatomical borders, and these spaces are prone to infections in the setting of penetrating injuries to the hand. The three areas are the thenar space, the mid-palmar space, and the hypothenar space. The thenar and the mid-palmar space are best thought of, in my mind, as the spaces lying underneath the palmar fascia, or that triangular-shaped fascia that we were talking about earlier. And this strong fascia basically has a number of attachments that will segment out the deep spaces in the palm. On the ulnar border of this fascia is a strong attachment that goes down to the fifth metacarpal bone. In the middle, there's another fascial uh, extension that extends down the middle of the palm and attaches into the middle metacarpal bone. This fibrous septum is oblique and is often called the mid-palmar or oblique septum. And there's not really a lateral or radial-sided septum as this space is really just continuous um, over the thena eminence and to the base of the thumb. So talking about each in turn, let's start with the mid-palmar space. So this space is bordered superficially by a thin layer of fascia that lies deep to the synovial sheaths of the flexor tendons, and its deep border is the interossei and metacarpals of the third and fourth spaces. Laterally, it's bordered by that uh, fibrous septum that dips down to the fifth metacarpal and then medially by the oblique mid-palmar septum. The thenar space is bordered anteriorly by the palmar aponeurosis and posteriorly by the adductor pollicis muscle. Medially or on the ulnar side, it's divided by the oblique mid-palmar septum and on the radial side, it's bordered by the first metacarpal bone. The hypothenar space is the space that encloses the hypothenar muscles. The most commonly infected space is the thenar space. And like I said, this most commonly occurs due to penetrating injuries. And you can have a look up at some pictures of the different infections in these spaces as they present with a characteristic appearance on clinical examination that makes you suspicious about a deep space infection. The last little thing that is good to know is the anatomy of the finger pulps themselves. Because you can get a condition called a felon, which is where you have a infection in the finger pulp. The pulp spaces have fatty tissue, but they also are divided into numerous small compartments by little septa that pass from the distal phalanx down to the skin. 
Because of this condition, swelling and pressure within the compartment leads to a little compartment syndrome of the pulp, and this can affect the blood supply that travels through the pulp to the tip of the distal phalanx and can cause necrosis of the tip of the distal phalanx, as well as the skin overlying the pulp of the finger. did it. We finished the upper limb anatomy. I'm so happy and also really happy that these episodes are recorded. So next time I want to brush up on all this anatomy, these will be available for me to listen to. I hope you've also gotten something out of this and that this helps your revision. can be a little bit difficult listening to these episodes if you haven't looked through the anatomy yourself. I am a big visual learner and I absolutely love Rowan's Color Atlas of Anatomy. I cannot recommend that enough. I also use Last Anatomy and Instant Anatomy. And as I've mentioned before, Robert Whittaker has some awesome instant anatomy podcasts. And the last resource that I use quite a lot is Jamison's The Anatomy of General Surgical Operations, which I love to read up as well before I do a case because it has really relevant operative anatomy and what you need to know for any case that you might encounter in general surgery. As always, please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!